This is Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. So good to see you. Thanks for being with us. If you don't know me, my name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here at Frontline. Uh, the, the whole time we were singing, I was just thinking about how much I enjoy singing to Jesus with you, how fun that is, and also the thought hit me, oh my goodness, they all came back after last Sunday. Everybody came back. And if you weren't here, uh, then one of the things we looked at in Revelation 2, the very end, was uh, Jesus saying that he's going to throw this false teacher on a bed of sickness and kill off her children. And man, it's all uphill from here. That's all you need to know. It's all uphill from here. So if you don't know what I'm talking about and, and that weirds you out, then you can just get on online and find our podcast and listen to the sermon last Sunday. Uh, so here, if I could title today, if I could title the sermon for you, it would be The Gift of a Wake-Up Call. The Gift of a Wake-Up Call. I want you to think about wake-up calls for just a minute. Uh, may, maybe imagine yourself going to the doctor and it's a routine checkup, everything's supposed to be okay, and the doctor says, hey, I've got some bad news. Either maybe you need to change this about your diet, or you need to address this issue in your life because you don't have much longer. That's a wake-up call. Or maybe you get fired from your job. That's a wake-up call. You, you come home one day, and, and your relationship with this person that you love, he or she says, yeah, I, I don't love you anymore, and I'm out. That's a wake-up call. Or maybe uh, you, you find out that your son or your daughter has been experimenting with drugs and it just crushes you. That's a, that's a wake-up call. May, maybe there's this thing in you where you've been hiding sin and you've been kind of protecting yourself and not being honest about what's really going on and the, the struggle or the addiction and then you get caught, you get found out. That is a wake-up call. Now, often the way that we receive those things are not as gifts they're jarring, they're painful, they can hurt, they can throw us off, they can confuse the way that we're living. But some of these things, a lot of these things are actually gifts from Jesus where he's inviting us to see ourselves and see the world in a different way and, and maybe even experience some change and some depth. And today, that's what he's doing in this, in this letter. This is what we're looking at as a church over the last few weeks. We've been looking at in Revelation 2 and Revelation chapter 3, these letters, there's seven of them that Jesus wrote to seven different churches in seven different cities. And what he's doing is he's coming to them and he's giving them some, some encouraging things on the one hand, here, here's the stuff I love about you, here are the ways that I want to commend you, and then he's also saying, I want to critique you in some other ways. Here's the problem I have with the church, or here's the thing I don't love 
about your church. And today, we're going to look at uh, Jesus' letter that he sends to the church at Sardis. And this, if there ever was, this is a wake-up call from Jesus. Now, to fully understand what's happening in this letter, you, you actually have to understand the background of the city, because there's some contextual clues in the history of the city that help us kind of hone in on what Jesus is trying to say to this particular church in this city of Sardis. So if you don't know much about Sardis, which is everybody in the room, because you didn't spend your week studying this, uh, if you don't know much about Sardis, then Sardis is a city in modern-day Turkey, and it was the two things that you need to know about it. It was an extremely safe city and a really, really wealthy city. This city was incredibly wealthy. In fact, it was the, the ancient capital of the ancient kingdom Lydia. It was the capital city of Lydia. And the, the city was uh, kind of converging on five major roads, five key trading roads all merged together in this one city. So you can imagine this became a hub for trade in the ancient world. And not only that, but they had this river that ran through their city. And at one point, they discovered gold in the river. So all this gold, and they mined out all the gold. So this was a city that was just intrinsically really, really wealthy. And in addition to that, it was also a very, very safe city. It was a safe city because you had two regions of the city. You had a lower part and an upper part. And the upper part of the city actually sat on top of this this hill. Think of like a plateau that jutted up from the ground 1,500 feet above the lower part of the city, and it had this impenetrable wall, this rock wall that you could not climb, you could not get to, and so they built the city on top of that, and this created a a really, really safe place. If any enemy wanted to come in and attack, anyone wanted to siege the city, they couldn't even get get up the walls to get to the actual city, and that's where the king of Lydia lived. So this was just a really, really wealthy city and a really, really safe city, but what happened over time because of the status and the wealth and the security is it just kind of, it kind of gave everybody this false sense of security. And, and the way I want you to think of it, any Lord of the Rings fans out there? Yeah, so great books, uh, even better books than the movies, but the movies are great too. Th- there's a part in one of, the, the, one of the scenes there where all of the people retreat to Helm's Deep. I, I've got a picture I want to show you of Helm's Deep. And this is what I want you to think of when you think of Sardis. It's this secure place where this, uh, you cannot get to the heart of the city without going through the front door. And so it was heavily guarded. And everybody that lived there, just like in Lord of the Rings, they thought, man, w- no one could ever attack. Like, we'll always be safe if we could just get to Helm's Deep. And over time, Sardis became lazy. And they became careless. And they became kind of lackadaisical about their own security and protection And two different occasions in history, one in 546 B.C., the Persians invaded, and then another in 214 B.C., the Syrians invaded. And what happened when the Persians and the Syrians invaded is literally while the city was asleep that night, they they were able to make their way up this impenetrable wall, and the people of Sardis woke up the next day to their city being overtaken by another government. This happened twice, and so this was in the history of the city where they had grown lazy and tired and sleepy in their own protection, and what happened over time is they just kind of fell asleep at the wheel and overtook their, their, these enemies overtook their city. And then there was this earthquake that happened, I think in 17 AD, that really damaged the city as a whole, and eventually they were able to rebuild, but it, it never was quite to its original glory. And so this was in the, the culture of the city was, hey, do you remember when we fell asleep? Do you remember when we weren't paying attention? Do you remember when we kind of just approached this thing carelessly and we got overtaken? 
And Jesus is saying a similar thing that's happened to the city actually has happened in the church. The church has become careless and the church has become lazy and has fallen asleep. Now, here's what's interesting about this letter when you get to it. it. So far, all the other letters that we've looked at, Jesus has written to them and he said, I wanna encourage you in some ways. I wanna commend you about this and this. And I see your good works and I see the labor and I see the way that you're, you're facing uh, external opposition well and you're, you're, not, you're not denying the faith but you're holding firm to my faith. Every other letter that Jesus is write, writing, he's encouraging the church on all these things and this letter, there's something mysteriously missing. There's no condemnation, there's no commendation rather whatsoever that Jesus gives to this church. Jesus has nothing good to say about the church at Sardis. He doesn't encourage them. He doesn't say, well done for this. Now think about this. This isn't like some crotchety old man that is grumpy about everything. This is, this is Jesus Christ, the most generous, kind, uh, the, the, most, the most compassionate person that you've ever been around. And Jesus can't find one nice thing to say about this church. He doesn't just throw compliments uh, you know, here and there. And he, he, he means what he says. And he looks at the church and he says, yeah, I actually, I can't think of anything that I want to commend you over. So that's mysteriously missing from the letter. There's only one other church in all the seven letters that Jesus doesn't commend, and this is one of them. And then in addition to that, there's another thing mysteriously missing from the letter that has been in every other letter up to this point. That there's no mention of any sort of persecution or any sort of heresy inside of the church. So every other letter up to this point, there's been some like direct opposition from the Roman Empire to the Christians, and, and Jesus is writing about the opposition that they're experiencing. Or if there's not this direct attack from the world to the church, inside of the church, there's some false teaching that had started to creep in and the people started to drift. But in this church, there's no persecution and there's no internal false teaching or heresy whatsoever. Now, you might hear that and go, wow, that's amazing. Like, praise God, there's no persecution and there's no false teaching from within. But actually, that in, in itself points to one of the biggest problems about that church. Uh, one commentator said it this way, G.B. Caird says, content with mediocrity, lacking both the enthusiasm to entertain a heresy and the depth of conviction which provokes intolerance, the church at Sardis was too innocuous to be worth persecuting. Or another uh, writer, Scott Daniel, says it this way. He says, the church of Sardis was not alive enough to have enemies or confront heresy. It had simply become the model of non-offensive Christian faith. So this is even the problem, the fact that there's no persecution from the city to the church. They're, it's not even worth persecuting. They're just this non-offensive church that's sitting there and there's nothing happening, so the enemy doesn't feel any need to actually infiltrate this church whatsoever. His work here is done in many ways. So what's the problem with the church at Sardis? If you really drill down and ask the question, what is, what is the indictment that Jesus has against this church? Well, here, here it is in, in chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We'll, we'll get back to that in a minute, but look at what Jesus says. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The accusation, the indictment that Jesus has against this church is that they had a reputation of one thing, but there is a tragic gap between the reputation and their reality. 
Now, here's what's interesting. Their reputation was that they are alive. So people in the city were like, man, have you heard what's happening at Sardis? Like that church at Sardis is blown up right now. There's a lot of life there. Even the surrounding churches were hearing the reputation of Sardis. People in Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira, they're hearing about this church and, and everybody's thinking, man, have you heard the program that they just started? It's amazing. The church is growing like crazy. There's a lot of life there. Have you heard the podcast that Sardis produces? The preacher there can preach. I mean, this is a lively church. There's so much vibrancy and health there. What a great thing. They're killing it for Jesus. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, I, I know what the reputation is, and I'm seeing through all of that. And the reality is that you're actually dead. There's a tragic gap between your reputation and your reality. Now just imagine for a minute being there on a Sunday hearing this from Jesus, like getting a letter and they're like, hey folks, we've got a letter from Jesus today and, and everyone's thinking, this will be great. This will be so encouraging. And, and Jesus says, good morning. You've got a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. And that's the start of your Sunday gathering with Jesus' words coming over the church. I mean, just imagine like what in the world is happening in this church and what you realize is that this accusation that Jesus gives to the church at Sardis is one accusation that he continually gave throughout his earthly ministry to people steeped in man-centered religion. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 23, almost identical to what he says to the church at Sardis. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, religious leaders of his day, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So also outwardly you appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is the problem with Sardis, is that outwardly they have a reputation for being alive, but internally, there's actually sin that no one's talking about. There's, there's addiction that no one's being upfront about. There's death inside of them, inside of this church. It, it was a church that actually was dead, even though the reputation was alive. And Jesus is saying, I see right through that. Now here's what's crazy. The same thing that happened to the city where there was all this wealth and no opposition coming from outside had lulled the city to sleep to where they went to bed one night not protecting their city and they woke up the next day to have their entire city overrun by the Persians and then later by the Syrians. Jesus is saying that same thing that happened to your city, it's now happened to the church. You just kind of went to sleep at the wheel. You quit tending to the sacred fire inside of your heart, inside of the church and you've fallen asleep. You're dead now. You're dead in your city. You're, like your city, your church has just completely fallen asleep. When I read about this, I can't help but think about the struggle in Oklahoma. And I think about what, what it means to be a Christian in our state. Uh, if you live in Portland, or if you live in uh, Seattle, or if you live in New York, you might receive some direct opposition for being a Christian. But, but in Oklahoma, it's very, very uncommon, right, to have direct persecution for being a follower of Jesus. We live in a place that's relatively safe. We live in a place where there's not a lot of opposition and pushback from our world uh, to us specifically as Christians. And, and, and what's interesting is if you think about the common struggle of being being a Christian in Oklahoma, your day-to-day -day struggle sounds kind of like the beginning of a first world problem joke. Do you know what I mean by that? Like most of us, this is our daily struggle. We're like, man, I'm just so behind on my Netflix queue. Uh, it's overwhelming actually how behind I am on my Netflix queue. Or, or you're like, I can't believe I paid $5.50 for that latte. Ugh, what world do we live in? I'll do it again tomorrow, but my gosh, what world is this? 
where the Wi-Fi is so slow in this room. What is going on, right? And, and these are the daily struggles of what it is to be a Christian in Oklahoma. And I think that what's happened over time is that it's easy for us to just be lulled to sleep by the culture around us, and we kind of don't realize all the ways that it's so easy for you and I to get caught just showing up on a Sunday and singing the songs and confessing the sin and and hearing the sermon and taking communion, and we do the thing. All the while, what's happened is long ago, years ago, months ago, our heart just completely went to sleep. We're dead. Think about Uh, this quote from A.W. Tozer that has wrecked me all week. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we would do would go on and no one would know the difference. But if the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. I just want to ask you, if the Holy Spirit were withdrawn from your life, would anyone know the difference? Or would you just continue to do the thing that you do? You go about your day, go about your week, go about your Sunday. And what Jesus is trying to say is, listen, I get it, but it is so easy for your heart in some ways just to die or to fall asleep while you just continue to go through the motions. And it's this thing called hypocrisy. This is what Jesus is addressing. It's spiritual apathy and death. Now here's what we do, because we all feel this. If you're a follower of Jesus, you feel this in some form or fashion, the need to maintain your spiritual life, the need to not drift into spiritual apathy. But all of us, every Christian that I've ever met, and if you're not a Christian, you're kind of wrestling with the claims of Jesus, this is what it is to be on the other side of it, right? Uh, One of the things that we struggle with as followers of Jesus is this tendency to hide our spiritual apathy that we feel in our chests, We either hide it or what we do is we connect ourselves to certain things to extract life in other ways. So we're either in the business of hiding or in trying to extract spiritual life so that we don't have apathy. Here's some of the ways that we do that. The connection to the right church. If I could just be connected to the right church, then I could hide the fact that deep down I'm really spiritually dead. Well, the church I go to is spiritually alive, so I must be okay. Or we connect ourselves to the right leader or the, the right crowd. My community group's amazing, so, so surely I must be doing something right too. Or that's where we try to extract life. Or maybe it's connecting to the right program. Well, I, I can't be spiritually dead. I'm in that really intense Bible study. And so that's proof that there's life and, and I'm okay. Or maybe we try to find the next program just to extract some life because we, we feel the pull of apathy happening in our hearts. Or maybe it's connection to the right theology. Now listen, right theology is really important. Like you should, if you're a follower of Jesus, study good doctrine and have good theology. Be rooted in the word of God. That is so, so helpful. But just because you embrace the right theology doesn't automatically mean that your heart is where it needs to be with Jesus. I've known people that have profoundly good theology and they died a long time ago spiritually. Right, So this isn't enough. What we do is like, well, if I could just get the right podcast or the right church or the right leader or the right program or the right thing, then I'll be able to ward off and fight off the spiritual apathy. And if I can't ward it off, at least I can pretend that everything is okay. I can build this, this life that my reputation says I'm fine, but deep down there's a tragic gap between my reputation and my reality. This is by definition what Jesus calls hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy comes from uh, the Greek word 
hypocrites, which is this idea, it's really interesting, it's this idea of, of an actor on stage. This is where the word came from. An actor on stage who would read a script and wear a mask. And that's where we got that the idea of hypocrisy is someone that just wears a mask and, and pretends to be someone that they're not. And man, how easy is it for us in Oklahoma to kind of lull ourselves to sleep and get in this mode where it's like, yeah, oh, you're a follower of Jesus. Here's your script. Here's your mask. Now just go ahead and show up on Sundays fairly regularly and you'll be okay. What we do is we pretend like, hey, how you doing? Oh, great. I'm totally fine. How about you? You good? You good? We're good. Okay, great. I don't know why we ask. We're just so good, you know? Um, I mean, yeah, I'm addicted to a lot of things, and yeah, there's brokenness in my soul, and my life's hanging on by a thread, but I'm okay. And all of a sudden, before long, we've so worn the mask and so read from the script that we don't even remember what it is to have a heart that's truly alive for Jesus. This is the thing that Jesus is pointing out. This is the struggle of living where we live. John Stott, in his excellent book, What Christ Thinks of the Church, he says on this idea of hypocrisy, it's form without prayer, reputation without reality, outward appearance without inward integrity, show without life. The correct word for this behavior is hypocrisy. So what do you do if this is you what do you do if this is our church? Like if Jesus wrote a letter to us at Frontline, if he wrote a letter to you, what is he going to say? Is this similar, what he's saying to the church at Sardis, does that sound very similar like the conversation he wants to have with you? What do you do if you've woken up today and you've realized that maybe years ago or maybe months ago or maybe you feel the pull today that there's actually this, this gap between your reputation and your internal reality? What do you do? Well, Jesus is going to give us a few things. This is the gift of his wake-up call. The first thing is this. He says in chapter 3, verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Jesus comes to this church and this gift of a, of a wake-up call, he gives them three things. The first is, wake up which is beautiful because he's already implying that if you feel this you're not too far gone if you can hear the call to wake up you are not too far gone he's saying hey wake up and it just got me thinking what is it in Oklahoma that puts us to sleep so easily have you noticed that our state in some ways just the culture of our state has this weird ability to tuck us in real tight and just kind of rock us to sleep as Christians and I, th I thought, like, what is it that, that puts us to sleep in Oklahoma? And a few things stick out. The first is uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, if that seems weird, like a, a string of words that you've not really thought through, moralistic therapeutic deism is what Christian Smith, uh, a philosopher, said, or I'm sorry, a sociologist said, this is the religion of our day. And when I think about Oklahoma, I want to say this is the religion of Oklahoma. What, what is moralistic therapeutic deism? Well, it's just this idea that, yeah, there is a God out there somewhere, and kind of we all believe that. We don't really need to know much about him. He doesn't need to be particularly involved in my life. He just wants me to be good and be happy. And if I can just keep the rules that he gave me and not do anything to make him too upset, then I don't need to do anything for him and, 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 and he doesn't need to get on my case about anything. So I'll just live my life. But if a crisis happens, then I'll pray and I'll call out to him and, and then he'll intervene. But other than that, I just need to be good and be happy and that's what he wants. That is the state that we live in. 
And what happens is when you talk to people about, hey, you a follower of Jesus, what they hear is moralistic therapeutic deism. Yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe that God exists. I'm trying to be a good person and keep the rules and do the right thing. And what happens, this is the whole point, I want to call that functional agnosticism. It's where functionally it's like, well, yeah, we believe there's a God out there somewhere, but there's this huge disconnect between our real life and that reality, and it has no bearing on how we live. We just kind of do our thing and go about the business, and, 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 and we, we, we walk in the role of what it is to be a follower of Jesus, but there's, it's just form. There's no reality to it. Moralistic therapeutic deism. I think Jesus is inviting us to wake up from that. There's another one, cheap grace. I talked about this two weeks ago, so I'm not going to hammer this point, but cheap grace is this idea that you can have Jesus as Savior and forgiver of sins without ever having to grapple with the fact that he is also your Lord that makes demands of your life. And We've kind of reduced grace down to this idea of, yeah, yeah, you're forgiven. Now you can live and do whatever you want. I think we need to wake up from cheap grace. And then the third thing that I think lulls us to sleep in Oklahoma is just our secularized culture. And you don't have to live in, uh, you know, the, in parts of Europe or on the coast to have the secular culture infiltrating the church. I think that if you have a phone, if you have access to the internet, if you, have, if you watch shows on TV, like, y- you are inundated with a secular culture. And here's what happens with that. What happens is that over time, you and I just start to, to, to forget what it is to have the vision of Jesus for our lives and for our city. And all of a sudden, the vision that the world holds out to us, here's the good life. That becomes the one that we adopt. And just like Sardis, you and I, we go to sleep and we wake up realizing that somewhere in the night, we've been overrun and the world has now kind of infiltrated my life. And all I want is what the world is holding out to me. The American dream, that is what I want. And no longer is it what Jesus calls me to. And this is so easy for us in Oklahoma because we start just living for the next experience. We live for the next restaurant to open. We live for the next pay grade to hit. We, we live for the next car that we can buy or the next house that we can buy. We, we live for the, 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 the whatever it is down the road, the weekend or the vacation. And, and all of a sudden, here's what happens. And this is doing ministry in Oklahoma. What I'm starting to realize is that people are waking up and like, you know, I don't even know why I need God anyway. My life is great. I've got Amazon two-day shipping, and it's about to be same-day shipping. Who needs God? And that sounds crazy, but that's real. Who needs God? I've got a vacation coming up, so I'm just going to set all my hope in that basket. Who needs God? Like, I'm making decent money, and I don't have a lot of chaos going on in my life. I don't even really need him. It's this desire to have the kingdom of God, but without God. I think this is what Jesus is inviting us as a church and as individuals, to wake up from. Now, what do you do if you realize, yeah, I've fallen asleep in some of these ways. How do I wake up? Well, Jesus goes on. He doesn't just say wake up, but then he goes on and he says, and strengthen what remains. Strengthen what remains. I love that. What he's coming to us and saying is, hey, there are some things inside of your heart, these, these little glowing embers of hope, and you just need to strengthen that. I'm a type of guy that loves to, to sit by the fire. Anyone else? It's like, I love the winter, not because I like the cold weather. I actually despise the cold weather, but it just makes having a fire more enjoyable than in July 
which is also what I do, uh, I'll just kind of create a fire whenever I can because I love sitting by the fire. People are like, oh, you smell like smoke. I'm like, exactly, you smell like smoke. It's amazing. I love all of that. Um, So that's what I love to do. And what will happen is I'll spend all this money on pinion wood, which is so expensive in Oklahoma, but it smells amazing. And I'll, I'll spend all this money on it and I'll create a fire and then I'll get caught in my house doing something and I forget that outside I've got this beautiful thing happening. About two hours later, I'm like, ah, pinion wood. I run out, and and it's like just embers, you know? And you have to sit, and you have to blow on those embers, and you've got to grab some some twigs and throw some stuff on there and get get that fire back again. And that is so many of our hearts. It's like we've just kind of gone in the house, and the fire has just dwindled down to next to nothing And Jesus is saying, hey, there's still some embers over there. There's still some embers like strengthen what remains. He's saying, hey, the the grace of God is coming to you, inviting you to strengthen what remains. You and I have this sacred fire in our soul that we just have to cultivate over and over and over again. Now, some of you, when you hear this idea of cultivating, you're like, yeah, 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 that's legalism. And grace is opposed to that. So I'm not gonna do anything to cultivate my life. Well, you need to hear the words from Dallas Willard from his excellent book, The Great Omission. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. See, the grace of God actually empowers you to work really hard at cultivating your heart for Jesus. That's not legalism, that's grace, right? So I want you to ask yourself these two really important questions. Everyone in the room, I want you to ask yourself today, what is it that I need to stop doing that's putting out that fire in my soul? And what is it that I need to start doing? What what is it that I need to start doing to to see this love for Jesus brought back? Because you are like this church, you've you've fallen asleep, and Jesus is saying, wake up and strengthen what remains. This requires effort, because have you noticed that you never drift into maturity? You never drift naturally into health. You actually drift away from it. I haven't been to the gym in a few weeks. That's, that's my confession. Uh, I also haven't been to the gym in a few years. So both of those are true statements. And, and it's weird that I woke up today and I don't have a six-pack, right? And, and, and some of us kind of treat our spiritual life that way. It's like, you know, I haven't read my Bible in ages, and it's weird that I don't love Jesus more. I haven't prayed consistently, and I can't tell you how long, and it's weird that I feel dead inside, No, actually, there's a connection between you strengthening what remains and your heart just fanning into flame for Jesus, warding off spiritual apathy. So what do you do? What what do you do? Well, like, if you stop doing some things so that you can start doing some other things, some of you are hearing that and you're overwhelmed, like, oh, please don't give me more work. I've got so much on my plate already. Listen, I'm not asking you to do more. I'm not asking you to go from from zero to ten. I'm saying, what would it look like in your spiritual life with Jesus to go from zero to one? What would that look like? The most revolutionary thing you can do as a follower of Jesus is the very first thing before you, you know, get out of bed and pull out your phone and look at social media or do whatever and check out, the, the most revolutionary thing you can do is to read your Bible. That is the most revolutionary thing you can do. The most revolutionary thing you can do as a follower of Jesus in today's culture is to, instead of driving to work, listening to a podcast or, you know, uh, uh, sermon porn is what I call it for some of you. It's like, oh, I've got to get the, you know, instead of doing that, that's may, may be inappropriate, but it's a good, it's a good way to describe it. Uh, instead of listening to the radio or whatever it is that you do, why don't you turn it all off and you pray through your day? 
What would it look like to pray for, if you're married, pray for your spouse? If you're not, if you have roommates, to pray for your roommates. What would it look like to pray for your own heart? Some of you are like, oh, I stink at prayer. I'm so bad at prayer, I don't know how to do it because I get sidetracked all the time and I start thinking about, man, pray about the stuff that's sidetracking you. That's, that's Jesus inviting you into a life of prayer. Your anxiety, your stress that you carry, man, that is his grace to invite you to pray about those things. What would it look like to just say, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wake up and I'm gonna read my Bible every day and I'm going to, on my way to work or throughout the day, I'm going to pause and I'm, I'm just, I'm going to pray. Those are two of the most revolutionary things you can do to strengthen what remains. And if you don't do that as a follower of Jesus, I just want to say, I don't know how you aren't going to slip into spiritual apathy and eventual death. I just don't know how you're not going to do that. He's coming to you. He's giving you a wake-up call. He's inviting you. Some of you are like, ah, oh, I don't know how to read the Bible. It's so confusing. Revelation is weird. How do you read it? Well, let me just give you a really helpful tool. This is called the Read Scripture app. Uh, some of you know Francis Chan. We'll, we'll throw this up for you to see it. Uh, Francis Chan wrote a book and made a lot of money, and he took some of that money. and We took all of it and gave it away, but some of it he gave to create this app. There are a couple guys in Portland that built this, and it's incredible. Uh, it has videos over each book of the Bible, has themes. So if you're reading in Leviticus and you're like, sacrificial system, what is that? There's a video about that that you can watch, and, and it has a daily reading plan that will take you from Genesis to Revelation in a year. And I just want to invite you as a follower of Jesus, would you download this, please? And would you do this? Would you do this? This would change the way that you see the world. This would change the way that you see Jesus. So strengthen what remains. And then finally, Jesus says this. It's not just wake up. It's not just strengthen what remains, but he says, remember what you received. Remember what you received. Now, what's the idea of remembering what you received? Well, I think the key to unlocking what Jesus is saying is found in verse 1. And verse 1 says, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. What is he talking about? This is Jesus presenting himself to the church, saying, I'm the one that has the seven spirits of God, and I'm the one that has the seven stars. The seven stars is the, the seven churches. We know that from Revelation 1. Some of you are like, seven spirits of God? I thought there was one Holy Spirit, and now it says there's seven. I'm confused. Every commentary I, I consulted on this, every single person that I looked up and said, what, what have other people said about this passage? All of them unanimously agree that what, what is being talked about here is the, the different works of the Holy Spirit that he does in the life of the church. It's the Holy Spirit and all the varied ways that he's at work in the life of the church. And so Jesus is coming, listen to this, he's coming to the spiritually dead church and how does he greet the church? He says, hey, I'm Jesus, I'm the one that has the Holy Spirit to give you and I also hold the churches. What he's saying is you need to remember the Holy Spirit that you received. Don't you remember the Spirit of God coming on you? Don't you remember the way that in Jesus you have forgiveness of sins? In Jesus, you have the righteousness of Jesus given to you as a gift. You, you have adoption as sons and daughters. You, you, you have this new identity. He's, he's offering you all this stuff, and he's saying you need to remember what you've received. See, it's so easy to stay dead when you forget that you are a forgiven person, that the God of the universe now looks at you and because of the finished work of Jesus on a cross, he says, you belong to me and I love you. There's something about that reality that keeps the heart burning with passion for Jesus. Something about this need that we have for the Holy Spirit to continually fill us again and again and again, 
That's what he's inviting us into. So he's saying, remember these things, and that'll wake you up. Now he closes like this. He, he gives a warning, and then he gives several promises. So I'll, I'll close it with this, the warning and the promises. So look at verse 3. He says, if you will not wake up, here's the warning, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. He's not talking about the second coming of Jesus. He's not talking about his final return to the earth. He's, he's saying, I'm going to come to you, and like a thief, just like what happened to your city, I'm going to actually bring judgment on you. Listen to that. He's bringing judgment on a church that had a reputation of being alive and did all the right things to produce that reputation, but their reality and their soul, the reality as a church, was disconnected from their reputation. In Matthew 7, there's some really scary words from Jesus. And he says, on that day, talking about when he returns, there are going to be people that say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all these things in your name? And Jesus is going to turn to them and say, depart from me, for I never knew you. And then the key is at the very end, you workers of iniquity. What had happened to this church is that they were content with having a reputation that they were godly and full of life, but inwardly that was not their reality. And Jesus said, you, you may be content with that reputation, but I'm not. And this is my church. And if you don't repent, then I'm going to come to you and I'm going to bring judgment. But then he gives all these promises and these promises are amazing. Verse four, he says, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will, look at this, walk with me in white for they are worthy. And the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These promises are amazing. Here's the first one. He says, you will walk with me. I will walk with you. How incredible. Can you think about that for just a moment? You're in a crowd. Jesus comes up. And he says, hey, Andrew, come here. Let's walk together. I just want to walk with you and talk. You will walk with me. Some of you go, oh, that makes me nervous to walk with Jesus. Like, is he going to pull out all my sin? Is he going to put his finger in my chest and remind me of all the ways that I didn't fulfill the stuff he asked me to do? And is he going to be judgmental and harsh towards me? No, no, no. Look at what he says. The second promise, he says, you will walk with me, plus I will clothe you in white. He's saying, I, I, the conversation that I want to have with you is not one of judgment and accusation. I will clothe you in white. This is one of grace. He's saying, come walk with me. I want to walk with you, and I'm going to give you all of my righteousness as a gift. And then here's the third one. I love this. He says, I will never blot out your name from the book of life. I will never blot out your name. Now, the book of life is a, was an actual book that uh, ancient Israel had, and they also had, the Romans had a similar book that functioned. They didn't call it book of life, but it functioned similarly. And in ancient Israel, this book of life, they would record, uh, anytime someone would get married, and there was a marriage covenant, they would record that in the book of life. Anytime you had a foreigner that wanted to join the people of Israel and, and become a part of the people of God, they would write in their name as full citizens of the people of God. Anytime you had a, uh, two villages that made peace with each other, there were peace treaties that would be written inside of this book of life. And so it's not just this, I, this random dusty book up in heaven that is like a phone book with everybody's names. Jesus is saying, listen, uh, you, you have an inheritance in me that's unfading. 
You have a new identity. Uh, the same way that uh, a, a husband loves his bride on the wedding day, that's the way I feel about my bride, the church, and, and, and I want that type of relationship with you. And so we've written in the marriage covenant in this book. There's peace between God and man. And he's saying, I'm never, ever, ever gonna blot your name out of that book. That is an encouragement to the church. Rome also had a book, and what they would do is, um, right before they would execute someone, they would blot their name out. They would remove their name from the book as, as if they never, ever existed. And Jesus is saying, I will never do that to you. I will never do that to you. And then the final promise, this is my favorite. He says, I will confess your name before the Father and his angels. Can you just paint that scene for just a minute? And Jesus grabs you and he's like, hey, come with me, let's walk together. And then he leads you to this place and, and it's the Father, the Father is there, God the Father, and, and all these angels are there and, and Jesus, hey, hey, everyone, could I, could I get your attention for just a minute? Could I have your attention? Thank you. I, I just want to confess before you, Father, Andrew Burkhart, he belongs to me. He belongs to me. I've clothed him in white. Angels, I just want to confess his name publicly to you. You need to hear his name. Andrew Burkhart, he, he's with me, and I've clothed him in white. This is the promise for people that are continually warring against this spiritual apathy that are, that are saying, I'm actually not content with having a reputation that says one thing and a reality that's very, very different. What it is to follow Jesus, what it is to have faith in Jesus, is to be someone that, that fights for spiritual life over and over and over again. So where do we go from here? Well, let me just say a few things as we wrap this up. I wanna ask you some diagnostic questions for you to wrestle with this. Where is there in your life, in your heart, where is there a tragic gap between your reputation and your reality? What's real about you? Where is there a gap? People think of you one way, Maybe even those closest to you think of you one way. But there's a gap between that and what's real. You cannot go on pretending as if your reputation is all that matters to Jesus. Because he sees lovingly right through it and this is his gift of a wake-up call to you today. What is Jesus inviting you to stop doing that in many ways is like pouring water on that fire in your heart? What is he inviting you to stop doing? And what is Jesus inviting you to start doing to fan that sacred fire into flame? I want to ask you, are you pursuing more of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life? Some of you are like, no, I'm a follower of Jesus. I've got all the Holy Spirit I need. Not necessarily true. Ephesians 5 says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. We tend to think of that as a water metaphor. Imagine a cup with like water in it. There's only half, the glass is half empty or half full, depending on your personality. And you're like, yeah, you know, I just, I, I have all the Holy Spirit. I need, there's, you know, once I'm full, I'm full. But actually the, the word spirit in both Hebrew and Greek can be translated wind, breath, or spirit. So don't think of water, think of wind. And many of you, you're like the sailboat sitting in the ocean you haven't hoisted your sails in a long, long time, and you're just kind of sitting there, idle, waiting for the wind to blow. What Jesus is saying is, man, I'll, don't get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. Be filled with the wind of my spirit. Let me come and breathe 
on those embers that are burning out. Let me breathe the breath of my life on your soul. And some of you today, what you need to do is actually during ministry time, just come up and say, I need the Holy Spirit to breathe on me today. I need the wind of the Spirit of God to come in and fill my sails because I've just been sitting in the ocean on my own. Some of you, that's what you need today. And then finally, last thing. If you're here and you feel dead, you feel dead. Like that's the way you would say it. I just feel dead inside. Jesus wants you to know that you are not beyond hope. The fact that you feel dead is a good sign because he's inviting you today to wake up. The fact that you feel like there's been death and spiritual sleepiness that's overtaken your heart, that doesn't mean that you're too far gone. You are not too far gone. The only thing that you have today is hope in Jesus. Hope in Jesus. He's saying, wake up. Today's your day. You can actually do this. Come and receive my grace.